The history of the church is a history of art, wars, conflict, and the persecution of dissidents. And to find in the history of Christianity the true history of the church with a capital C is an art form, and it's not an easy task. Alexander Mean The two ancient capitals of Russia, Great Novgorod and Kiev, were connected by a road, a long road that went through dense forests and meandered through swamps. Somewhere in the middle at the confluence of the rivers was a place where a traveler could find rest for himself and his horse. Here was a roadside house where one could buy milk, butter, and cheese. Because of the house, or, or because the place was swamp-like, it was called cow puddle, which in the local Mordovia dialect sounded like of Moscow. Today, Moscow was the second largest city in Europe, greatly changed from its beginnings as an unsightly small forest village. Its history of prosperity and power is closely intertwined with the history of the triumph of Russian Christianity, as the once pagan city of Rome became the capital of the Western Christian world. Moscow now claims the title of the capital of Eastern Christianity. Unlike Rome, however, Moscow has never been pagan. Though the city matured simultaneously with the spread of Christianity in Russia, its people's path to God was not easy. It was often dangerous and bloody. The Slavic people are a God-seeking people. All human beings are, of course. It's part of human nature. But for Slavs, this seeking seems to be manifested in some special way. Faith is accepted freely. Faith that is imposed by force has no value, it has no meaning. Faith must be given freely. This film is about the Slavic nation's quest for God and the price attached to the right of a free expression of faith. The first mention of Moscow in the Chronicles was in 1147, which was during the time of a Christian Russia. Thus, the emergence of Moscow as a city occurred simultaneously with the Christianization of Russia. This suggests that Moscow, unlike ancient Novgorod and Kiev, has never been pagan. In 1156, Grand Prince Yuri Dolgoruki founded the city of Moscow. According to the historical records, he built a wall around Moscow, thus transforming a village into a town. Throughout the 12th and 13th centuries, the rustic provincial town of Moscow could hardly be called the capital city of even a small principality. Later, it became the capital of a separate principality during the reign of its first permanent prince, Daniel of Moscow, the youngest son of Alexander Nevsky. 
the God-fearing Prince Daniel built the first monastery in Moscow. In his declining years, he became a monk in that same monastery. In Russia, monasteries and monastic life in general played a crucial role. In fact, monasticism represented or personified the true Christianity. It was a life of asceticism, it was a life of faith, and it was a life that sought holiness. Modern European civilization is rooted in monasticism. All of the first universities in Europe are of monastic origin. The European written languages and cultures are deeply rooted in Christianity, monastic Christianity. The official church itself had little to do with this. It's quite clear that the official Orthodox Church was very supportive of monastic life. In its insistence that we are the true Church, it made reference to the exploits of ascetic monks as showing the wonders of God's power through the phenomena of healing, exorcism, and other miracles occurring often in the monastic environment. Monks were the charismatics of the 17th and 18th centuries. For centuries, monasticism was the only missionary force of the Christian Church. In the monastic movement, the ability to read scripture in the original language was central to the formation of a monk. As an example, consider Stephen of Perm. For 16 years, this man locked himself in a cell in order to learn Greek and Hebrew, in order to read the scriptures in the original languages, and he studied Latin, enabling him to read the Western translations of the text. Later, he learned the Zyriansky language, and after 16 years, went to be a missionary to Permiaks and Zyrians. The Zurians were then called the Komi group of tribes. Stephen, born in Great Ushchug, knew northern Russia and loved its open and good-natured people. Becoming a celibate priest, he began to carry out his dream. Stephen opened the heart of Christian teaching to the people of Permkrai. The Zurians listened with amazement. Many were willingly baptized, but there were also others, especially pagan priests and believers in magic, who resisted. A master sorcerer named Pam, wanting to protect his belief, volunteered to pass unscathed through fire and water, and he demanded that Stephen do the same. I do not command the elements, the humble monk answered, but the Christian God is great. Thus, I will go with you. 
Pam, with a talent for deceiving people by demonstrating a so-called supernatural ability, saw the courage of his opponent and withdrew his demand. But Stephen, to witness the action of God's powers, pulled Pam into the fire behind him. When the Zirians saw Pam's fear, they wanted to kill him. However, Stephen blessed Pam and let him go. For the Zirians, this was a testimony to the power of the new God. In a very short period of time, and without modern means of communication, Stephen evangelized and converted the tribes around the area, an area greater in size than Western Europe, a strong example of the role that Scripture played. And what does Stephen of Pound do? Once the Zirians repent, he begins to translate the scriptures into their language, in so doing, creating a written language for them. Stephen did for Zirians what Cyril and Methodius did for all Slavs, made their own alphabet. And this alphabet does not use the Russian or Greek characters, but rather the local runes, which are marks for notches on a tree. Here is a sacred icon with Zirian characters, painted by Stephen of Perm. Monasticism developed in a very interesting cycle. First, it consisted of holy men, hermits who taught students. Then came the do-gooders and donors who developed cities with walls. Then because there was so much wealth, the monks stopped working and grew fat. The monastery became rich and monks lived a well-fed, peaceful life. Why work when there was so much of everything? Later there appeared devotees who left the monastery, who believed that it was wrong to live like this. They believed that this was not the gospel, not Christianity. Step by step, monks strayed from their initial quest for God, being seduced by a luxurious and self-satisfied life. The monasteries were made up of farmlands and the people who worked the land. There were reasons for this. The Mongol Tatars, the controlling power at the time, were very loyal and tolerant toward the church and did not exact taxes from the church. Therefore, the church accumulated its earnings and its wealth increased. Oddly enough, it was the Mongol invasion of Russia that led the church to become a bureaucratic organization. Leaders of the Mongol hordes of Genghis Khan and the later Batu moved from China through Siberia and invaded Russia. There, they conquered and subdued the tribes, charging tribute and destroying cities. But they left no armies and made no attempts to control the area. Understanding the Mongol invasions is sometimes misinterpreted in school history textbooks. The general thought is that the occupation was similar to that of the Nazi occupation, but this idea is incorrect. Once a town was overtaken, if there was no resistance, it was robbed and its beautiful women, young men and cattle were taken. Then the hordes would not come again until 20 or 30 years later, 
after another generation had grown up. But in regard to religion, the Mongols were very liberal. And the reason for that was a collection of laws compiled by Genghis Khan called Yasa, which was confirmed by all his successors. The first law states that there's only one God, creator of heaven and earth, who holds life and death and wealth and poverty at his discretion. Also, each nation is free to worship God in its own way. Yasa also did not allow the taking of tribute from monasteries or the taxation of church workers, and this law was strictly enforced. Laurentine Chronicle in 1257 states, that same winter came delegates who took a census of the entire Russian land, but not count the abbots and those who serve in the church. The Khans often endowed monasteries with lands in which the nomads held no interest. So monasteries became large landowners. In 1283, Mongol Tatars started issuing special security certificates, which put Russian metropolitans on a par with the princes and in turn increased the gap between the church hierarchy and the people oppressed by the same Tatars. Karamzin writes in the history of Russia, one of the consequences of the Tatar domination was the elevation of our clergy and the multiplication of monks and church estates. Politics of the Khans, which oppressed the people and princes, protected the church and its ministers and revered the metropolitans and bishops. The historian writes that the crowds of people moved into the monasteries, becoming monks. Even princes and other aristocrats changed their clothes into the mantle of a monk. Church ownership, free from any taxes, prospered, and the Orthodox clergy prayed diligently for their oppressors. The official church was not interested in severing relationships with the horde. This underlies Russian respect for those few monks who fought against the Tatars. These were Alexander Perezfiet, Andrew Aslabia, and of course, Saint Sergi of Radonish. like to believe that there were others whose names are lost along with other missing chronicles. Tatar Mongols forced the administration of the Russian church to ask questions that had not previously been asked. During the Tatar-Mongolian yoke, upon the church there appeared a series of movements, especially in the monastic life, independent of the administration. The relationship between the church and the horde was mutually beneficial. Tatar said, they pray for us, 
In turn, the church gradually became a commercial enterprise, and the church offices were sold for money. The gap between the clergy and the world had become an abyss. People rebelled against this clergy. One such popular movement became the so-called movement of Strigolniki. The locals were not ready to accept priests who had paid bribes to obtain office. Indignation grew because the demand for priestly office was great and the ecclesiastical administration conferred recognition upon new people only for a fee. To become a priest, it was necessary to pay a fee, which was almost an official tax. Everyone knew this fact and knew it was the norm at that time. Bribery is not an invention of the Soviet period, it is a much earlier invention. In any case, in the 14th century, this led to the appearance or resurgence of the early Protestant movement, Strigolniki. In the Orthodox Church, it is necessary to understand that one cannot perform a sacrament without a properly ordained minister, otherwise that sacrament is invalid. One cannot be baptized, married, or buried without such a minister. But a payment was needed for ordination. People began to read the Gospel and found that payment was not needed. It was not in the Gospel. Another reason for the people's indignation was that in reading the law of God themselves, people found many inconsistencies between the traditions of the church and the requirements of the sacred books of the Bible. The point was that the religion of that time could be called the period of dual faith. Academic Golubinsky notes that people just merged Christianity with paganism, but did not replace paganism. Paganism and Christianity were practiced at the same time. The author of the Primary Chronicle laments, In words we are called Christians, but in actuality we live an unclean life. Anyone who begins to study the Holy Word will sooner or later become a Protestant, whether he wears a robe or a civil suit. The Great Novgorod. Here began the Stregolniki movement, which was mostly like a natural process rather than an accident. First it was a city with a collective self-government. Some historians even call it a republic. Second, it was a member of Hansa, the European trading community that made it the richest Russian city. Third, and most important, Novgorod stood out because of its universal literacy. More than half of the surviving birch bark letters and memos were written by women, indicating a high household literacy rate. And this at a time when the majority of Russian princes signed their names using crosses. It is known the people in this movement were literate, at least that's how their enemies and critics described them. If they had not been literate, no one would have listened to them. But since they were literate, they apparently read the Gospel and saw that Christianity must be based on completely different principles from what they saw in their local churches.
If shepherds become wolves, sheep must lead each other. This phrase, from the word about false teachers, succinctly expresses the essence of the Strigolniki movement, which was headed by two deacons, perhaps former monks Karp and Nikita. They were supported by the representatives of the lower but educated clergy, monastics, and laity. What do we know about those involved in this movement? We know that they formed the first congregations. They couldn't build houses of worship. Instead, they put up crosses and gathered around them. There, they prayed and received their teaching. Here is what was written about their services. They preached in the city squares and by the crossroads. There was street preaching, evangelism, and teaching, which included moral requirements such as what a shepherd should look like and what a Christian should be like. The tarnished reputation of the official church had generated distrust of its traditions and rites. Study of the scriptures convinced those in the movement that apostles lived and taught otherwise. Also, they saw that in the Bible only Simon Magus asked for money for ordination, and for that, he was cursed. Among the Orthodox population had emerged some religious groups that deliberately renounced the church institution in the organization of their church life. They self-organized their communities. They tried to build their lives according to the gospel. Their lives were run by individuals chosen due to their authority. Authority, except for organizational abilities, was trumped by knowledge of the gospel. This is a classic sign of Protestantism. Such religious groups always occurred within grassroots orthodoxy. Religion and the religiosity are living processes, actually a movement, and when this movement takes form and this form begins to squeeze, to limit the vibrant life within, the appearance of sects are evidence of resistance to this formalization. This is a form of the people's Christianity, and the sect always expresses a manifestation of such a grassroots religiosity and remains alive, freer in its manifestations, and claims to have an integral right to protest and disagree. What did the sects reveal? Why were they so important to Russians? Sects reveal that you can talk with God personally, without an intermediary. Russian sectarianism laid the social framework for future Russian evangelical Christianity, that is, hard work and sobriety. This is the idea of Russian sectarians. For them, the quality of life was important. In other words, how you live is how you believe. The main reason for sectarianism was the dissatisfaction of the common people with the spiritual life of the official church. People were beginning to realize that the point was not in the rites. They were seeking a personal relationship with God, seeking peace, seeking joy in the faith, and seeking justice.
The Strigolniki movement was a very original, purely Protestant movement, because it began with a protest, was accompanied by protest, and in fact was suppressed as a typically reoccurring Protestant movement by the state apparatus. In 1375, the Constantinople Patriarch Niles Messenger arrived with a letter against the heretics Strigolniki, and the Sofia and Novgorod chronicles of the same year have a message that Nikita, Karp, and others were drowned by being dropped from a bridge. This entry reads, In the same year in Novgorod on the Volhov River, Strigolniki heretics were drowned, saying, It is written in the Gospel, Whoever shall offend one of these little ones, it were better that he have hanged about his neck a millstone and be drowned. Quoting the gospel while executing others were those who advocated bribery and do not want any change. But despite such a brutal massacre, 50 years later, the Strigolniki communities were not only in Novgorod, but in Peskov. The annals of 1425 stated that so many were drowned that the Volhov could not carry its own water. There was a secret church in Pskov, so I rightfully call Novgorod the cradle of the evangelical movement in Russia. In its reprisals against Strigolniki, the Russian church opened a new page in its history that contains the one name that terrifies the Inquisition. And this was its fatal mistake. The Strigolniki argued against the sale of priesthoods, and rightly so, for in this the Russian church had been mistaken. They continued to persecute and kill, but the movement of those seeking God could not be stopped. Isn't this interesting? The Strigolniki movement was 100 years before Luther and the Reformation in Europe. It occurred during the time of Jan Hus and the Hussite Wars. We know what happened with Jan Hus. While being burned at the stake, he said, exactly in 100 years, a white swan will fly and nobody will stop it. And then, Exactly 100 years later, something happened that in world's history is called the Reformation, led by Martin Luther. And what's happening at this time in Russia? The same ideas of reform had already been formed within the Orthodox Church. There were three directions. These included the non-possessors, the Josephites, and the Judaizers. The movement of the Judaizers was a kind of continuation or even a culmination of all the previous spiritual grassroots movements that had occurred on Russian land. At the end of the 15th century, this Novgorod-Moscow movement of believers actually enveloped the whole country and all walks of life, ranging from simple people up to princes. Political leaders of that time shared the ideals and beliefs of the Judaizers movement. The Metropolitan 
Norton Zosima himself identified with the Novgorod Moscow movement of believers. There's no doubt that the first people who were carriers of Protestant ideas were ministers of the Orthodox Church. And this so-called heresy of the Judaizers, which had no relation either to the Jews or to Hebrews, was an original movement, an original search by Russian and other Slavic peoples to find the truth of God, which is in the Gospel. The Novgorod-Moscow movement of believers was really progressive for its time in terms of economics, religion, politics, and even social structure. In all aspects, this movement was ahead of its time. Thanks to the negotiations led by the leader of this movement, Fyodor Kuritsyn, head of the diplomacy department, in today's language, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. A peace agreement was reached with the Mongols. It was during his time that Moscow Russia ceased to pay tribute to the Tatars. Another achievement attributed to the Judaizers had to do with the architecture of the time. Until the late 15th century, nearly all buildings in Russia were made of wood, which led to fires and many casualties. Knowing that Europe thrived on stone architecture, Fyodor Kuritsyn was able to conclude a number of economic agreements with the Holy Roman Emperor. The result of these agreements and negotiations was the arrival in Russia of some of the best Italian architects of that time. Construction by these architects was carried out with the direct participation and under the observation of Fyodor Kuritsyn and other participants from the Novgorod-Moscow movement. A new architecture that expressed Russian style began to develop, a style preserved for centuries in Russia. Few people know that this style originated as a kind of symbiosis between Italian engineers and architects and Russian Protestants. What was the essence of the spiritual movement, or heresy, as the representatives of the official church called it? It was the fact that they, the so-called Judaizers, put the gospel above rites and traditions. They denied the icons and many rites and maybe even espoused adult baptism. This movement represented a set of individual groups, but all of them were united by the observance of the Sabbath as a day of rest. And, very importantly, they began to observe the Ten Commandments. Thus the name Judaizers and the commandments called the Jewish Decalogue. Gennady, Archbishop of Novgorod, wrote to the Moscow Council that the priests he arrested were seducing the people through the Jewish Decalogue. So the council did not debate about faith, but to execute the heretics, hang and burn. Why were they accused of abandoning Jesus Christ and the New Testament? The fact is that Greek canon law allowed execution only when one refused Christianity and returned to Judaism. In other cases, execution was forbidden. 
So eager were the Russian inquisitors to shed blood and confiscate the wealth of the Novgorod Moscow believers, and indeed the Novgorod Moscow believers were a developed class, including the economically developed class, which were a wealthy stratum of Russian population, that the inquisitors make charges which would allow them to execute these people and to take away their entire estate. Thus, the only accusation possible was to charge them with a return to Judaism and a repudiation of Jesus Christ, which in fact was not the case. If the history of Russia had unfolded differently, it might have been a forerunner of the Western Reformation. But instead, it was lit by the fires of its own Russian Inquisition. What has happened? How could such a massive, progressive movement close to the royal court suddenly be persecuted and pursued with incredible brutality hitherto unprecedented in Russia? People were sawed alive, tortured in cells, burned in the squares. These were the people who built the country, regained its independence, provided the education and taught crafts. What had they done to the Tsar and their fellow Russians that they were so ruthlessly destroyed? The answer must be sought in the dynastic crisis that occurred in Moscow in the last decades of the 15th century. In 1467, the 27-year-old Grand Prince of Moscow, Ivan III, became a widower. Pope Paul II, wishing to extend the influence of Catholicism on Russia and draw Russia into the war against the Turks, offered in marriage his goddaughter, the Greek princess Zoe Paleologus, the niece of the last Byzantine emperor who had been killed during the capture of the Constantinople by the Turks. The Grand Duke liked the idea of inheriting the Byzantine throne offered by the papal diplomats. A man who had served in the Russian royal court, the Italian Gian Battista della Volpe, whom the Muscovites called Ivan Friazin, was sent to Rome to woo the bride for the Grand Duke. Friazin returned home with a portrait of the princess, which became the first example of secular painting in Russia. Soon, Princess Sophia herself, as named in Russian manner, arrived in Moscow. And although she became the Grand Duchess of Moscow, in her personal letters she continued to call herself the Princess of Constantinople. Her husband, Ivan III, adopted a new state symbol, the two-headed Roman Eagle. And the Grand Duke began to call himself John. Czar of all Russia. However, Sophia brought to Moscow not only the spirit of greatness, but also the spirit of Byzantine intrigue. Desiring to enthrone her son, Vasily, she managed to rally some of the boyars and influential representatives of the official church and create, in modern terms, a political party called the Roman or Italian Party in contrast to the Russian party, which was led by the young Prince Dmitri, successor to the Russian throne, his mother, Elena Voloshanka, and other leaders of the Judaizer movement. 
The Roman party accused the Russian party representatives of heretical beliefs corrupting the people. Sophia, who had managed to enchant Tsar Ivan, was able to instill this idea in him. Prince Dmitri and his mother Helena Volshanka were taken into custody, and Ivan III gave Dmitri's throne to Sophia's son Vasily, perpetrating his autocracy of all Russia. The Grand Prince Vasily became co-regent with his father, and remembering that the Judaizers supported Dmitri, began actively helping Joseph Volotsky, the abbot of the Volokolomsk Monastery, and a staunch fighter against the heresy of the Judaizers. Volotsky, in turn, put pressure on Tsar Ivan III and convinced him of the need to eliminate the heretics using intensive investigations, torture, and savage executions. Joseph Volotsky taught that heretics should be tortured and executed. In his monastery in Volokolamsk, he built torture chambers and gas chambers long before the Nazis. These were the Orthodox, persecuting, as did their Western European counterparts, the Catholics. Here were cells where the floor had been specially constructed with holes, passages like chimneys. Beneath them, under these cells, was fuel for the fires, rags, leaves, and smoke that tortured the people to death. Russians and Ukrainians who visit the Museum of Religion and Atheism, which was once exhibited in the Kazan Cathedral in what was then Leningrad, find those the most impressive exhibits. These exhibits were taken by Soviet historians from the oldest monasteries and clearly show the satanic essence of such a politicized orthodoxy. So gradually, monasteries that were once sources of enlightenment and virtue became persecutors of faith and perpetrators of cruelty and violence. A new way to eliminate one's opponent came through the vows as a monk. The opponent did not necessarily have to be spiritual, he could be political. There were cases of tonsuring the royal family, that is, princes and disobedient wives, who actually were imprisoned in the monastic cell in a monastery prison. Much was written about this by Pergaev and other researchers of the 19th century. The Joseph Volokolamsk Monastery, built as a prison, became the prison for many prominent historic figures. Maxim the Greek, imprisoned in that monastery for many years, wrote, I was tortured by smoke, frost, and hunger. It became a formidable prison. That is why during the Russian-Polish War in the early 17th century, Polish prisoners were kept here. And during the Napoleonic Wars, the French prisoners. In 1504, the Grand Princess Ivan III and his son Vasily, Metropolitan Simeon, 
Other bishops and the church council condemned heretics, that is, Judaizers, to death by burning. Ivan Kuritsin, Dmitry Konoplov, Ivan Maxion, and many others were burnt alive in wooden crates. So it was in that year the residents of Moscow saw the first inquisitorial fires in Russia. Grand Duchess Elena Voloshanka was poisoned in the monastery prison, and young Prince Dmitri, on the orders of his half-brother, was placed in the closed chamber, where in chains he died three years later. Vasily III's reign was marked by brutality, but a particularly bloody ruler was his son, the grandson of Sophia, known as Ivan the Terrible. And though the fires continued to burn and the Russian Inquisition was gaining strength, yet a wave of Judaizer movement continued to roll across the expanses of Russia. As a result, the official church at the Stoglov Council convened in 1551 was forced to make a decision that is active yet today. It states that in addition to Sunday, Christians should rest and conduct worship services on Saturday in every Russian Orthodox Church. This conciliatory decision was assured by the authority of Apostles Peter and Paul. And it was not the only contribution of Judaizers to the development of the Russian Church. The first theology, which was a real, systematic, and Christian theology in Russia, emerged from among the Novgorod Moscow believers as they attempted to interpret for the people the gospel and show the beauty of Jesus Christ. They attempted to show that a relationship with God comes first, before any church rites, before any rituals that an official church proposed. Along with the ideologues of the Inquisition, in the same century were those Orthodox priests who carried the gospel to the people as well as the Spirit of Christ. If we assume Joseph of Volokolamsk to be the father of the Russian Inquisition or the great inquisitor of the Russian Orthodox Church, insisting that the Bible was only for internal use and to be used only as a liturgical book, then over against him we must see Nihilus of Sora. This was an enlightened man of God who recognized that the Bible is not only for the Church, not only for its services, but it is for the common man. It is for everyone's knowledge. It is for all. Nihilus Azora was a copyist of the theological books in Cyril Belozorsky Monastery. After leaving the monastery, he founded Eskit, which is a small monastic settlement consisting of hut cells where the monks who were accepted had to be educated and able to read the scriptures. Nihilus argued that one can only know God through his word. He himself lived according to the gospel. When the council condemned the Judaizers, he was the only one who publicly declared the heretics could not be executed. 
However, he gained fame with his sermons about generosity. Statements that monasteries should not be landowners and that monks should not be dependent upon the work of slaves, but on themselves to earn their daily bread. In other words, the church should not acquire wealth. He hearkened back to the apostolic church model. Disciples and followers of Nilus of Sora became known as non-possessors. The opposite view was held by Joseph of Volokolomsk and his supporters, known as Josephites or moneymakers, possessors. His philosophy was more popular within the church because it argued that churches and monasteries should be rich. A new direction began to emerge. Beautiful monasteries, magnificent buildings, golden domes and gorgeous vestments of the clergy appeared. Many monasteries gradually became owners of a huge number of villages, as well as serfs. By the end of the 15th century, for example, almost one-third of all land owned were owned by churches and monasteries. This wealth, however, did not contribute positively to the internal life of the monasteries. The non-possessors and Josephites began to contend for influence over the Tsar, and the Josephites probably fought harder because they relied on the position that their monasteries needed land to be really wealthy and to have influence. At first, the Tsar supported the non-possessors. He was attracted by the fact that they refused monastic lands with all villages serfs. They were willing to live in poverty and be content with little. But the non-possessors were principled in moral issues as well. And when the king decided to marry a second time, they began to reproach him. Josephites, on the contrary, said that the king was above the law and free to act as he saw fit. When the king realized that he could not convince them, he gave priority to the Josephites, after which began the terrible massacre in Russia that destroyed the non-possessors as well as the Judaizers. It was this bloodshed that essentially destroyed the infant reformation. I personally regret that the Josephites won. I believe that if the non-possessors had won, the history of Russia would have been different. There would be no effects of Ivan the Terrible, or a council which split in 1666 when the movement of the old believers appeared. We would not have the terrible figure of Peter I in the 18th century, when not only the church suffered, but the entire Russian culture as well. I believe in this. There would not be, say, the year of 1918 if the other spiritual side had won. Non-possessors were not heretics or free thinkers. They just claimed that Christianity is not compatible with the acquisition of earthly riches. But the official church, which dominated by Josephites, perceived even this as dissidents. Why 
Why was the Russian Orthodox Church so harsh toward the dissidents or toward dissidents? Why? Because the Russian Church associated itself as the ruling church. Any dissenter was a potential enemy. The marriage of the Moscow sovereign with the Greek princess gave him the right to be called Caesar, or in the Russian manner, a czar. The double-headed eagle, coat of arms of the Paleologus dynasty, became a symbol of the Moscow state. The Moscow state itself became the successor to Byzantium. Realizing this, the spiritual hierarchy sought to build a church life according to the Byzantine canons. Within the Orthodox administration, there has always existed an Inquisition. The Orthodox Inquisition has its roots in Byzantium. When we talk about Volotsky, in principle we are talking about the radicalization of the Orthodox administration. And such administrative psychosis, I would say, it is typical of the Byzantine Christianity and typical for church administration, which in turn became the state church. This is an administration that is trying to stifle any awakening movement that exists against official doctrine. With Byzantinism, there is almost no room for other Christian groups except the official group. This is the main reason that only orthodoxy could take root in Russia, and all other groups have had much difficulty taking root. The decisive steps towards establishing Byzantinism was done by the church itself. Moscow's highest priest, Metropolitan Zuzima, first named Moscow the Third Rome, and later the idea was substantiated by an elder monk, Philophy. The first Rome fell and fell to Catholicism, to heresy. The second Rome fell, fell in Mohammedanism. The third Rome is Moscow. And God loves a trinity. No fourth will be. So if Moscow, the third Rome, falls, what will next come? Antichrist. Any feeble effort against the church was perceived as the work of the Antichrist. Such a concept put the church in a unique position giving it the right to prosecution and punishment of dissidents. But in order to exercise this right in practice, it needed the support of the secular authorities, in particular the Tsar. The supreme power of Caesar, who was the head of the church, was typical of Byzantium. The Byzantine emperor Justinian described in his novella, His Body of Civil Law, a model ideal of the relationship of church and state, which he called a symphony. According to Justinian, the state and church are two heads which should support the governance or society in general. The same idea migrated to Moscow, the third Rome, with its double-headed eagle. This idea has always existed in the Russian Empire, and it exists today. The formula of the Third Rome, a fourth will not happen, was the model of full integration of church and state. When there is such an integration, there are no examples for the state to follow in becoming more humane or spiritual. At the same time, the Church felt the real problem of this integration when it turned into a tool of the state. A tool by which the state could keep its citizens in subjection to the framework of the system, a regime that a particular state was comfortable with. 
для государства удобным. Церковь переставала выполняться. Church ceased to function, and this is a huge problem, which I think led to a crisis of Catholicism and orthodoxy in that time, and a crisis which continues today. The laws of the Russian Empire in Tsarist times designated the following. The head of the church was the imperial majesty. That is, it was confirmed by documents, approved by the state, within the law of the state, and in the code of the Russian Empire. The Church, for the most part, especially if we're talking about the Orthodox Church, was subordinate to the state and the head of the state, and not to God, whether the head called himself Tsar, Prince, Emperor, or President. There is a saying which originated in the 16th century. If the church is going to marry the state, it will be childless. I think that this phrase well characterizes this phenomenon as Moscow, the third Rome. We are people. From birth, our inherent desire is skyward. In the cradle, we all look up. But only when we grow up are some mesmerized by eagles soaring freely in the sky, while others are mesmerized by the eagle fluttering on the flag. The church and state do not correspond to a single axis. Church should be outside the state. It lives in the state, it affects the state as a salt, which should change the composition of society, but the church should remain a foreign entity. The church should be separated from the state, definitely. Once the church merged with the state, as was in the Middle Ages or today, it began to be an instrument of state. Here, for example, orthodoxy, when it was united with the Russian state, changed from a church to a department of religion. It may already bless guns, bless cruisers, bless bombs. It can dictate who is good and who is bad. Government officials no longer make this decision, but the church does. The church is becoming like the two-faced Janus. It serves both God and Caesar at the same time. However, playing both roles at the same time is impossible. Any church struggles to be the first. I do not blame the Russian Orthodox Church for this. I do not like that in this struggle they use so-called administrative resources that are based on the power of the state. This is not a worthy use of resources. What is ideal is a symphony where the church influences the morals of the state. The state, having power, helps the church to fulfill its mission. It is this that is ideal. 
Unfortunately, in history, there has never been such a perfect relationship between church and state. The vast majority today are secular states, where the church operates within civil society. It works along with all other public organizations. The church has no position in statehood or preferences. And it is clear, the church is created by citizens who are equal. Government is universal in its hate of any spiritual search, because walking in the path of a spiritual search is outside the control of the state. When I was baptized, I felt myself a Christian. I realized that I was free. I'm not afraid of anything, not the Communist Party or the KGB or the state, nothing, not this bureaucracy. I realized that I do not have a judge other than God, and that my relationship with the state is my inner contract. If I do not like the state, I do not not owe anything as a Christian. The history of the evangelical movement is like this. We learn historical facts based on execution orders and the books of martyrs. Often, the development of church history was determined not by ecumenical or universal councils, but by individual followers of faith who at one time were dissenters pathetic loners who kept the Word of God steadily. Subsequently, the whole church has recognized them as the fathers of faith. So Jesus said to people like them, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. And as you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. <laughs> 